guys so much. Thank you all. Be seated as I prepare my stuff from below. I want to let you know that there is honey in the rock. And thank you guys for blessing us this morning with that beautiful rendition. Uh, I am someone that enjoys worship a lot and find that during a given week, sometimes I need to just sit in my room, close my door, and put some worship on my computer and then sing at the top of my lungs as loud as I can and just remind myself just how good the Lord is and how sweet it is to be loved by Jesus. Amen. It is a good week. I'm feeling good. I hope that you're feeling good. Um, I want to give you a warning for those of you that love a lot of scripture. Today I'm going for it. I'm going to read an exorbitant amount of scripture. I feel like since Josh blessed us last week so greatly with chapter 9 and the idea that they were able to sit through six hours of service, I felt compelled to say, maybe if I just increase my reading from five or six verses to, say, 40 or 50 verses, Diane, would that be 40? Perfect. But to do that, I also have brought these, and I want to let you know that I am giving in. It is time to make peace with the inevitable. So, church, I welcome you. I see you. I welcome... Hey! Angel, good to see you. But more than that, look at Bill. Look at Brother Bill over there in the corner, smiling... Bill, I, I think we should have Bill and Kathy both stand since they're both broken and you want to see them both stand. Stand, broken people. Bless the church with your physical presence. There they are, the broken Nelsons. Oh, the Nelsons. You got Dylan up here playing. We got to get soap up here. We need the whole thing. We need a Sherry Dylan soap ensemble. It's just a good day to be in the house of the Lord. And I really do. Thank you, Josh. I, I don't know where he went here, there. There he is, back in the back. I mean, the fabulous thing about what God has given us between me, Rod, Bill, and Josh, I mean, you guys really have a beautiful flavoring of different kind of salsa, paprika, you know, salt, pepper, right? I mean, you don't want something that's just salt, 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 you know? It's good to get that flavoring in there, and I feel like Josh in particular, when Josh comes up, it's like the way he loves the Lord and the way the Lord speaks through him, I was just, I was pretty motivated. And then to have an extended time of worship, like, it's, it was weird. I actually found out through a couple of different stories that people left. They didn't know what to do when they found out there was an extended time of worship. It's like, we're so programmed to hearing, okay, the service is now over, and you're free to go. And we're like, okay, we got to go. But if you want to stay, if you want to stay, if you want to pray, we're going to have... And I was beautiful. I was praying. I prayed with quite a few people, and then I looked up, and there was people on the stairs. And I don't know about you, but I'm just old enough to kind of think... How long has it been since we've been at the stairs? How long has it been since we've been, like, at the feet of Jesus, right? To just, like, make that space. And then all of a sudden I realized church was way over and people weren't leaving. And there were some families that stayed and I had some beautiful conversations about thanking Josh for creating that space for them to just hang out. And I want to encourage you, today after the service we're going to have communion. We have done away with the third table due to just kind of travel constraints. People coming left and right and up and down. So at the end of the service we will have communion just kind of up front. And same thing again, if, if you need extended time, one thing I want to encourage you, no matter what time the service does in, 12.30, 1.30, 2.30 today, <laughs> I will stay. I'm pretty sure I can get Bill to stay, and I even see Rod's in the house today. Rod will stay. I know the small group has to go. We have the small group thing across the way with Rich is going to be doing all the small group leaders at some point in time. You know, we have to release you. But never feel like you're in a hurry to leave right? I feel like we wait all week long. I do. I wait all week long. I work all week long just to get here. So I don't ever want to be in a hurry to leave here. If you need that extended time, um, you can for sure have it. 
So like I said, Rich will be across the street with the small group leaders. If you're involved in any of the small groups and stuff across the street, then next week is going to be Bill and the care ministry team. And then the third Sunday will be Jen and I hosting with uh, Sherry, the families uh, group. And so any of you that have families, young families, we want to get a chance to get all of you in the same room and get a chance to kind of meet and greet. And so we'll watch the kids. And so any of you that have families, if you have someone you know who has families, any small kids of any sort, high school, children, whatever, we're going to provide some food and just let you guys be blessed to hang out. So with all that going on, let me just say this. If it's your first time here, we're in chapter 10 of Nehemiah. We're getting close to the end. We should finish at Easter, so you guys should know. We'll finish at Easter, and then we'll have um, a couple of different Easter sessions, including a Friday night, uh, Good Friday service. I'm not sure the time, six or seven. Um, six? Six? Okay, Friday night at six. Bill will be helping me with that. So a couple of different things, and then we're finally going to finish Nehemiah, and it looks like we might be heading towards the book of Acts. So uh, I'm excited about book studies. I don't know if you guys get excited about that, but I am. So just a quick reminder, let me run you all the way through chapter one in Nehemiah. Nehemiah gets the call, right? He's, he's doing his job. He's in Babylon. He's happy. He's serving the king. He has a really plush job. He has great influence, but all of a sudden his brother shows up and says things aren't good at home. He has to reconcile. What do you want to do? He goes home. Two through six, opposition and obstacles, a lot of different people, a lot of different problems that he has to kind of deal with and process. He works all the way through that, trusting God, growing each time that he gets through that to get to chapter seven, where not only does he finish the wall, but he finishes it in less than 60 days, 52 days, something that's been undone for years, lots of times, 70 to 140 years, depending on how you look at it. A long time the wall has been down is done in less than 60 days, and he rallies the people and in rallying the people and putting the wall back up, he realizes something. That particular call is now complete. What is the next thing now that God has him to do? He sees the people. He realizes the walls are up. He's like, okay, Jerusalem, it's time that we become a people again. So he transitions into kind of leading them now into spiritual renewal. And I think that's a really good point in and of itself is if you've ever been on a, sp a spiritual kind of endeavor, maybe you've gone to Mexico on a missions trip or gone to another country on a missions trip, or anytime you go somewhere to do something, a physical project will, will often kind of bring believers together. And the result of that often is a transition into a, into a spiritual endeavor. And that's what happens in chapter 8. This revival begins. And Nehemiah realizes, hey, it's not just a revival. This is a work of God. So should I lead it? It's not my calling, but should I lead it? And he looks around, and he's like, who is God placed? And he sees Ezra, and he places Ezra in it, and the people respond beautifully. To the point of what you heard last week in chapter 9, they spend over a half a day in prayer, in worship, in supplication, crying out to God, saying, hey, we want to be your people once again, and in wanting to be your people, we're willing to do something. What is it they're willing to do? They're willing to covenant once again with God. So a covenant relationship is a really important thing. For those of you who hadn't kind of thought about how covenants play a role in our lives, probably one of the first covenants that a lot of people get to make is baptism, right? Where you get to stand in front of the church. Big John, you remember this? You get to stand up there, you get to write down your testimony, and you get to remind yourself that you've made a covenant pledge to be a follower of Christ. You get a chance to share this kind of oath that you promised to follow God, you've promised to follow the, whatever the Bible says, right? It's a covenant relationship. It's kind of the first time we enter into that. And then transitioning from that to, once again, with Josh last week, the next major covenant that a lot of us make is our marriage vow, right? The idea that we pledge before God, before family, before friends, to make this vow in sickness and in health, for better or for worse, 
until death do we part. We make this covenant vow to be in relationship with someone. And that's what Israel has to fall back on. They're in a covenant relationship with God to fall back on that. They can't necessarily make a new one because they've already made one many different times, right? It started with Noah. There was a covenant with Noah and the animals. There's a covenant with Mo, um, uh, Moses, Noah, and Abraham. All of these guys have major covenants. And even though they forgot about them, or maybe they're not applying them, it doesn't negate them. If God said it, then it's so, right? And they just simply need to remind themselves, hey, we have a redemptive plan in Christ, and we need to fall back to that. Now, one thing I should make note of is when you're in covenant with God, this is not an, the type of agreement this is, is not the type of agreement where you get to negotiate. We do not play a role in a covenant relationship with God. We simply agree to the terms that God has placed, or we reject it. It's that simple. Either agree to what the Bible says and what Christ has put forward, or, or we reject it. So once they re realize, hey, we have this relationship with God, what we need to do is we need to stop letting the urgencies of today change our priorities, right? And that's what they continue to kind of struggle with. It's like, well, today is this. Today's problem is this. The urgency of the day has a way of kind of reformulating their priorities. And what God's saying is, this is not true for you. If you're, if you're in a relationship with God, your priorities are already set. And regardless of the urgency of the day, what you need to do is set those down and follow me. So as I get ready to pray and go into a massive speed reading, I'm going to drink some water. And All right, get ready to join me on this journey. Father God, we are in covenant with you. We are walking with you. We have made an oath to follow you and your word. And just like Israel, Father, we often forget and we often kind of fall away from what we once knew. And I pray that today, as the word of God is read, as the, as the Spirit has the opportunity to, to teach and to remind each one of us who we are in Christ and what we've made a, a promise, an oath to do, then I also just pray to you that you would strengthen all the relationships, especially the marriage relationships that have made covenants, Father, is just to remind ourselves that even though we forget about things, does not negate it. And even though sometimes we forget about the promises you've made to us, does not negate it. May your word continue to be our source of strength encouragement, and hope, and everything that we learn in this building bring honor and glory to and through your son, Jesus Christ. Amen. So because of that situation, chapter 9 ended with a therefore, and whenever there's a therefore in their Bible, I'm a big fan of going back and asking what it's there for. It's therefore to summarize everything that they've learned from being in prayer and supplicating for the long period of time, as Josh noted last week. So let me reread 32 to you. Now, therefore, our God, the great God, mighty and awesome, who keeps his covenant of love, do not let all this hardship seem trifling in your eyes, the hardship that has come on us, on our kings and our leaders, on our priests, on our prophets, on our ancestors, and all of your people from the days of the kings of Assyria until today. For in all that has happened to us, you have remained righteous. You have acted faithfully while we have acted wickedly. Our kings, our leaders, our priests, and our ancestors did not follow your law. So Israel's in big trouble. And Israel realizes like never before that even though God has promised them something, it's on them. And so regardless of how this passage continues to go, I want to start with just kind of reminding us that God is never not faithful to us, right? If God says there's a way that we should stay on and a way that we should follow, he says he is the way, the truth, and the life— then oftentimes when we're somewhere lost and we turn around and we say, God, where are you? He's on the path, right? Amen. He never leaves. He never strays. He stays on the path. And that's kind of what Israel's waking up to. It's like, we're off the path. We're lost. What do we need to do? They need to re re return to this amazing covenant that was made with Moses 
200 years before. Now, this covenant that was made with Moses is found in Deuteronomy. I hope you guys love the Old Testament as much as I do. So Deuteronomy is written about 650 BC, so that's 200 years before Nehemiah, okay? 200 years. This passage is so incredible that not only does it help Nehemiah now, but I believe the same passage, Deuteronomy 30, 1 through 4, is the same passage that freed Israel to come back home and become a nation. Listen to this amazing covenant that God had made with them. When all these things have come upon you, the blessings and the cursings that I have set before you, and you call them into mind and all the nations to which the Lord God has banished you, right? The Lord has allowed them to be banished too. And when you and your children return to your Lord God and obey his voice with all your heart, with all your soul, with everything that I am giving you today, then he will restore you from captivity and have compassion on you. And he will gather you from all the nations to which the Lord your God has scattered you. Even if you have been banished to the furthest horizon, he will gather you and return you from there. And the Lord your God will bring you into the land your fathers possessed, and you will take possession of it, and he will cause you to prosper and multiply more than your fathers. Now that promise was made 200 years before Nehemiah, and not only does it apply to them now, but I think it also applied to them in, let's see, May 14th, 1948. You know what happened in May 14th, 1948? The nation state of Israel was reborn, right? And he called them all back again, once again. I, I think these are the kind of beautiful things about, like, before the passage even started. So when you get a chance to kind of supplicate with the Lord for a couple of weeks, it's just reminding yourself. Sometimes it, we feel so distant from God. Sometimes we feel so much not a part of what he's doing. And the reality is we're just simply off the path. If we would just stop and instead of start, keep walking into the wrong direction, just stop what we're doing and saying, Lord, I'm lost. You know what, Lord, it feels like I'm, I'm, not, I'm not in your will anymore. It feels like I'm outside of your blessing. Where do I need to go? He, he will, like the loving father, simply call us. He beckons us back to the past and says, come back to the past. Come back to my promises. Come back to the covenant that I've had with you. And that's why I think in verse uh, 9 and 38, they say, in view of this, in view of what? In view of this Mosaic covenant, in view of this whole thing that you presented for us, we are making a binding agreement, a covenant, and we're putting it in writing, and our leaders and our Levites and our priests are fixing their seals to it. The very same people that he just said were the ones that fell away that were wicked. He's saying now these same people are going to put their name on it and bind it. Once again, the seal is like when you melt the wax and you kind of shove your finger ring with a signet on that. You say, we're making a deal. We're, we're making this covenant with you. And the people that are making it first and foremost are the priests, right? The pastors, right? Who, why? Because who's ever going to lead us, who's ever going to be responsible for us, they have to be on board. And in Nehemiah 10, as we start the passage, 84 people are listed, 84 of the leaders of the church, from the priests to the secondary group, which is the Levites, to all the leaders that are involved, including gatekeepers, musicians, temple servants, anyone and everyone who's been set aside to be in leadership, to, to help Jerusalem come back to this understanding of who God is and what he's promised. And then you see that beautiful passage in verse 10. For those of you that love names, I'm not going to torture you with my name enunciation, but there's 24 priests listed behind Nehemiah in verse 10. Then there's 18 listed of the Levites. Remember, the Levites are those people set aside to run the temple. There's, they're, they're family generational, a tribe set aside to run the work of the temple. Now, I think it's important, uh, probably a message within itself, just the idea that every one of those names means something. Every one of those names is associated to a, to a husband and to a wife and to a family. And in the end, he says the husband and the wife, the whole clan is going to come up the next passage. They're all going to be part of it, right? 
But I think for the guys, we got men's breakfast coming up here in a little bit too. Just a quick little tap on the shoulder for guys. This is a really important passage because they got to take ownership of the fact that they're in charge, right? They're going to be responsible. You're going to answer for your household. And, he's, and this whole thing, Nehemiah is saying, 84 of these main leaders, here's their names, here's their families, here are their legacies. They're going to be responsible for making sure that this covenant that we're signing with both a curse and a blessing attached to it, we are going to honor it. And when we get into the actual details of all the different things that I promised, it's a beautiful thing. So, all right, here we go. Last super read. Starting in verse 28. Uh, the rest of the people, priests, Levites, gatekeepers, musicians, temple servants, all who separated themselves from the neighboring people for the sake of the law, and got together with their wives and their sons and their daughters and everyone who was able to understand. Now they join with fellow Israelites and nobles to bind themselves with a curse and an oath to follow the law of God given them through the servant Moses and to obey carefully all the commands, regulations, and decrees of the Lord. So that's why I read you the Mosaic Covenant, right? That's the covenant that they're falling back to. A reminder that God is good and that he has something for them. 30, and we promise not to give our daughters in marriage to the peoples around us and to their daughters for our sons. More about that coming up. When the neighboring peoples bring merchandise or grain to sell on the Sabbath, we will not buy from them on the Sabbath or any holy day. On the seventh year, we will forego working the land and cancel all the debts. We assume responsibility for carrying out the commands to give a third of a shekel each year for the service of the house of the Lord, for the bread set on the table, for the regular grain offerings, for the burnt offerings, and the offerings of the Sabbath, for the new moon feast, the appointed festivals, basically anything and everything happening inside of the house of the Lord, including the duties of the house of the Lord, they're going to cover that. 34. We, the priests and Levites and the people, have cast lots to determine each one of our family who will to bring... Who is to bring to the house of God at set times each year a contribution of wood to burn on the altar of the Lord God as it is written? Much more about that coming up. We also assume responsibility for bringing to the house of the Lord each year the first fruits of our crops from every tree as it is written, the firstborn of our sons, our cattle, our herds, our flocks, everything that the priests need for ministering there. Moreover, we, we will bring to the storerooms the house of God to the priest, the first of our ground meal, our grain offerings, our fruit from our trees, our new wine and olive. And we will bring a tithe of our crops to the Levites, for it is to the Levites who collect the tithes in the towns that we're doing. We will not neglect the house of God. They pretty much have decided that they're going to cover everything that's involved with the temple. Everything. And there's a lot involved because the way their calendar is set up, because of the way they do things, there's a lot of different festivals, there's a lot of different sacrifice. But it all starts in verse 28. And so for us, let me just remind us that it all starts with this. In order for us to be unified, in order for us to be under the same kind of idea, we all need to agree to be under the same authority, okay? Now, this was a nation that was kind of doing their own thing, and you remember, as, as Nehemiah was putting them back together, even putting them back in the towns that they needed to go to, they were all kind of doing their own thing. And what they're saying here in 28 is from the 84 leaders, from the priests, from the Levites, from all the different gatekeepers, the musicians, we are deciding to be under one body, to be unified, and how can we be under one body? We're going to place all people under one authority, okay? And this is really important for us. The only way, church, that we can all be under one authority is to be under one conviction. You know what that conviction must be? God's word. God's word. God's word alone must stand as the first thing. If uh, Those of you guys like uh, C.S. Lewis, knowledge of the holy, uh, first thing that comes to your mind is the most important thing about God. For by the first thing that comes to your mind, for all things will be seen. He calls it a cipher, right? 
If the first thing that comes to your mind about God is not being seen through God's word, then you have a different cipher. You have a different way of seeing God. And what he's saying is we need to all put the word of God over us. And if we all agree, regardless of where we come from and where we live within the city, if we all agree to be under the authority of God's word, then something happens. We now have a way that we can argue, discuss, fight, live. Whatever it is, there's a way that we can do it. But no matter what, we have a, a ruling authority that we can all yield to. And that's super important because the reality is some of us feel like, okay, when it comes to the sacred, the things in my life that are scriptural or biblical, I want to be under God's authority. But when it comes to the secular side of my life, maybe my business or, you know, how I do these different things, I'm going to be in charge of that. And he's saying everything. Think about it. If he's God of everything, if he's, if he's over everything, then he's to be over everything that they do. Whether you're mowing a field or praying in a temple, he's still your Lord. He's still over you. And how would he have you do those two things? right? If he has you mowing a field, he would have you doing it to the best of your ability, because there's a biblical mandate that whatever we do. And so that's what he's saying. Recall the promise that if you guys want to be unified, you have to be under one authority. So they make this covenant. They decide to join the church and be under one body, and then they make an oath, including an oath with a, a curse that comes upon them, to be under what? To be under this law. Now, this is an interesting, the law that they're under is the Old Testament law. This is Nehemiah's Old Testament, right? So it's a different law. It's a different law than we are under now, which we will definitely get to that. But the idea of the Old Testament law was you follow the law, the 600 plus rules and regulations of the law. If you break the law in any way, then you need to sacrifice. Remember, part of what they made the commitment to was all those sacrifices that needed to be prepared. So they wanted to make sure that those were available in the temple to be followed. And then based on that, if you blessed God, if you kept the commandments of God, then God would bless you. If you didn't keep the commandments, then he would curse you. And so the repercussion of being cursed for them, obviously, was being in captivity and all these other things. So they were able to see that, is that they were not keeping the law. The problem is, with the system, is no one can keep all 600 of the laws. So they were in this perpetual cycle that became historic for Israel, and I would say even today, that they could never get out of, right? Is this sin, repent, restore, renew. Sin, repent, restore, renew sin, and they're still kind of even in it today because the reality is even when the Lord returns today, they're going to have to make peace with the fact that they denied him as the Messiah. But Jesus comes in and he breaks into this, and we're going to have a little bit more on that new covenant that we are actually under um, with, with communion, which is an exciting thing that I'm looking forward to sharing to you. Moving on to verse 30. So the first thing that part of being under this covenant is to remind the parents, okay, remind the parents to not let your children be taken in marriage to uh, non-believers, now, this may sound like new information, but if you think about everything that's been involved, remember in the building process in the very beginning, there were people that wanted to jump in and help Nehemiah build, remember? And what did Nehemiah say? No, okay? No outsiders are going to be responsible for what God has called us to do because outsiders would then take away from the fact that when this is done, this will be a miracle of God that he's done with his people. And so God's people need to take ownership for this. So he was, from the very beginning, he was very selective. Then once the wall is kind of completed, what does Nehemiah then realize? I need to get the people back in place, back in the town where they were situated. He goes to Ezra's list, and then he reallocates who the people are and where they need to go. Everything about this has been protecting them. Why? Because they are the original set-aside people. You can't change that. It is what it is. We, the Gentiles, those of us sitting in this room, most of us today, are the grafted-in ones, Right? But at this time, he's talking to them saying, hey, look, you're the set-aside people. You need to be set aside. Part of that means if you intermarry with the people that you're supposed to be ministering to, then you cannibalize your faith. How do you cannibalize your faith? 
Well, remember, we're under, we're under one authority. If we're under one authority, then at the end of the night, if the Bible says don't let the sun go down on your anger, we have to reconcile to that one authority what we need to do so that we can be reconciled according to God. Whatever it is that the word of God says, we can always fall back on that and say, whether I like it or whether you like it, whether you understand it or I understand it, it says it, so it's done. And we can always yield to one authority. As soon as we bring another authority in, well, you say, well, they're non-believers. I'm going to just minister to them. But a non-believer is who you're supposed to be ministering to, right? Not partnering with. Now, some people have married, and, and through marriage, God has blessed them. And there's kind of exceptions to every rule in that sense. But you've got to remember who they were at this time and what he's saying. saying being set apart is what, what I called you to do. That's what I need you to do, okay? And remember, there's times, too, in the Old Testament when he sends them in and they fight other people. They're, they're to completely wipe out everything, right? You talk about the, the harshness of the Old Testament. Completely wipe out everything, cats, dogs, whatever, I mean, nothing, nothing, I'll come total wipeout, white, because he does not want them to lose focus of the fact that they're a set-aside people with a set of rules and regulation that they've been called to be under, and that means sacrificing is going to be really important to each one of them, and they have to be trusting that if God says, if you do make this mistake, then you do have a system that you can kind of fall back on, you can sacrifice, you can go through these different things. God's word is the authority, and that for them, the Pentateuch, the first five books, are really important. That's one of the things they're constantly referencing to. What does God want us to do? Okay? Someone has to stand in the gap. Someone has to be there. Someone has to pull them back. And if two people are moving in different directions, for instance, let's say you say, well, this is what the word of God says. And they say, well, this is what I believe. That constant pulling back and forth is going to make it to where neither one of those people actually make the progress they need to make to go forward, and nobody wins the race. Now, like I said, there are definitely exceptions and definitely times when God has used relationships to do that, but for what they were calling at this time, the idea was make the sacrifice to trust God. Remember, priorities have been set by God, and don't let the urgency of the day, well, we need to marry our kids. We don't have anybody to partner them up with. That's, a, that's an urgency of the day, right? But the priority that God's saying is, yeah, but my priority is that you stay pure, is that you stay holy, and that you realize the authority that you're under. Moving to verse 30, 31. The next covenant that they decide to remind themselves is they decide to fall back to the idea that they need to honor the Sabbath, okay? And the Sabbath day was a day set aside from the very beginning so that you would not do work, that you would have this opportunity to rest. And one of the things that they had fallen into, which I think today is probably just as applicable, is they were, they were doing business. They were doing business, and they were doing business with outsiders on the Sabbath day. And even though it doesn't seem like much, matter of fact, today I would say probably one of the conversations I have more than any other conversation, maybe 50% of the conversations I have with people is the struggle to be at church on Sunday. Okay? The struggle to keep God and to keep the things of God a priority. Now, I understand people need to make money and people need to work and all this stuff, but the idea that he was telling them, and I think it's even good for us to hear, is if God isn't a priority, if the word of God, if we're, not, if we're under the word of God and that's a priority of life, then keeping God as the priority of our life should set in order everything else that we do and say. Amen? Okay? So if, if that's the priority, then you say, well, um, if I don't make money, then I'm not going to make my rent. And so it sounds like a pretty good thing. And I could say, well, okay, I'm making it, we'll make an excuse this time. The problem is, is every, every Sunday, every Saturday, whenever you go to church, there's going to be something else coming up. And if we don't have that time set aside to say, you know what, the reason why I exist Monday through Saturday, the reason why I had any success Monday through Saturday, the reason why I have a house or a relationship or a job or any skills is because of what the Lord has given me. 
And I need to battle back on Sunday and do whatever I need to do to remind him that he is my priority. And then I get a chance to thank him. And I get a chance to sing a song and take communion and be with the body of Christ and be edified and strengthened. If I don't make Sunday a priority, then every day becomes the same thing. What's the urgency of the day? I'm allowing the urgency of the day to set my priorities. And God's saying, that's not how I built you. That's not how I want you to operate. I want you to operate under the pretense. I've set the priorities. You need to honor them. If you honor them, then I will organize and set all the things apart. And once again, they're, they're doing business with non-believers. So not only are they not witnessing or not evangelizing or not leading the non-believers to Christ, they're simply doing business in life with them, right? How, how does salt lose its flavor? When it, when it forgets who it is and when it forgets what it's been called to do, right? We don't look any different. We don't act any different. We don't sound any different. And we don't taste any different. So we have no ability to have influence. I love the fact that the Bible talks about now is that remember that the Sabbath wasn't built for us, right? The Sabbath was built for him. He built that for himself. To, to have a day of rest means coming up to when they talk about this idea of giving the land a rest, on the seventh year, I mean, think about that. You can work six years as diligently as you want, as long as you want, as hard as you want. But on the seventh year, you've got to give the land a rest. I don't know about you, but I, a lot of us don't think about the land as being alive or needing a rest, right? We just pound it, and we just pound it, and we just do what we want, and we do what we want, and we need, and we just keep doing the same thing, saying, it's not like that. There's an order, there's a rhyme and a reason in everything in God's world. And I want you to realize something. By not honoring these things, you're trying to make so much money all week long that that same mentality just kind of comes pervasive in every single day. What I'm saying is make enough crops in the sixth year that you can give a chance to give the land a chance to rest in the seventh year. And then you'll find that the cycle again will be healthier for all of you, for both you and the land. Ultimately, what is he saying? It's about sacrifice. Okay, these, first two, these first two covenants are about sacrifice. If you want to be a follower of Christ, if you make a covenant vow with God to be a follower of Christ, then you have to realize something. That comes with the covenant to sacrifice, right? You're a follower of Christ, realizing the sacrifice now, especially what Jesus has given to us and the freedoms that have been uh, given to us in that sacrifice. And so we must be able to do that because not only do I need to la- let the land rest, but I need to be able to forgive debts, I don't know about you, but forgiving debts doesn't seem like something any of us are acclimated to, right? I, I can remind my kids constantly about stuff that they still owe me for, you know? My son's still grown, and I would love to tell him about all the stuff I spent money on. I get no credit for any of that stuff, but like we're kind of gatekeepers of debts, right? We become, and God says, no, after the seventh year, it's clear. Man, the jubilee for them on the 50th year, everything was cleared. Everything was restored back to its original owners. It's crazy to think if we could do some of the stuff that the Bible said. Like, okay, nothing new, no one created, there's nothing new under the sun. We just fall back to what the Word of God says and just actually try that, what it would be like. Who knows, maybe when the Lord returns, we will, and it'll make perfect sense. Moving on, so they fall back to this idea, the sacrificial things, so that the house of the Lord in 32 and 33, they have to keep the house of the Lord stocked. They have to keep the house of the Lord prepared. They have to keep the house of the Lord enabled to do the different things that it needs to do because you're not going to be able to follow the law. And when you can't follow the law and you need to make sacrifices, you're going to have to go to the temple to do that. So they decide to take offerings. I'm sure this is where the concept of why people make offerings for the church and why people support the church is because from the very beginning, that's always been an opportunity for people to say, thank you, God, for everything that I have. But knowing that everything I have is from you, then let me freely give back to you and say thank you. So they're going to provide grain, animals, 
I mean, if you look at the list, I mean, they're basically providing everything. So they have festivals in the front half of the year, and they have festivals in the back half of the year. And anytime any of those things are done, there's things that are needed for that. So animals to be given. The animal can't just be any animal. It has to be a perfect animal or as close to perfect as possible. And then including the sin offering at the end of the year. So everything about the system requires offerings. And so they're saying, hey, look, we're going to take that responsibility as well. And part of our oath is going to be a realization. We don't want anything that the church needs or the temple needs to go, to, be, to go without. And we'll make sure that the Levites get this, 34. We'll make sure that the Levites get it. It's their job. And that they will allocate it and disperse it. Along with that, we'll even make this bonus commitment to make sure that the fire stays burning. Okay? Now, this is probably something we hadn't thought about in a long time. But the, the idea was inside of the temple is the altar of the Lord. That altar is supposed to be burning 24 hours a day, seven days a week, okay? They don't have gas, natural gas coming in. They don't have someone that set it all up and they can just hit a switch. In order for that fire to be burning all day, every day, day and night, someone has to be feeding that fire and maintaining that fire. Someone has to be cutting wood, bringing wood in, putting wood in, and maintaining the fire. Why? Because when someone has a sin issue that requires a sacrifice, they need to be able to go to that altar, place it on the altar, then the altar consumes the sacrifice, and as it consumes it, the, the kind of scent and the burnt embers of that going up, that's kind of how they believe their prayer was then going up to the Lord. That sacrifice then went up to the Lord, right? That process of keeping that fire burning was tedious, and it definitely had gone out and gone away. And they're saying, hey, look, we're making a commitment as well to keep the fire burning. That's funny. That's a phrase we kind of say today, keep the fire burning. Right? But maybe we don't understand why. Christianese, you hear it, because this is why. Keeping the fire burning is a reference to the idea that God is available to you, to me. Whenever we sin, whatever the situation is, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. He, he's the original 7-Eleven. He's never closed. He's always open for business so that wherever you are, whatever you're doing, why, whatever reason you're doing it, you can stop what you're doing and say, okay, there's the path. I'm off the path again. I realize I have a sin issue. I got to go back to the path and I need to sacrifice and tell the Lord, hey, I'm sorry. And part of what he's saying is just make sure your first fruits, make sure everything that you have, that you're keeping it in priority and how it goes to the Lord, which transitions to verse 35, 36, this idea of first fruits. Now, most of us today are not having crops in our backyard. And although some people at my old church used to bring grapefruits, I came from La Quinta, and whenever the grapefruits would bloom, that was always a beautiful thing to have grapefruits. Somebody brought a lemon. D or someone's bringing a lemon or an orange to church every once in a while. But first fruits, how do we bring these first fruits? Okay, we're not an agrarian society like what it is. So let me explain to you what first fruits is. First fruits means the first of everything you have. The first of everything and anything you have. So you make the list of something you have. If it's the first of that thing, you give it to the Lord. You, the idea is that whatever you have, however you've obtained that first thing, you have the opportunity to then say to the Lord, thank you for this item. Thank you for this. And I want to take a brief moment now to address specifically parents with children, baby dedications. This is a fabulous first fruit. It's just a fabulous opportunity to look at something from the Old Testament and realize how we got that as a church. The idea here is that baby is such a blessing to you, and obviously there's parents that try their whole lives to have children and never can have one, right? But that child is such a blessing to you that regardless of what that child chooses as its path in life, salvation or no salvation, to take that child as its first fruit and stand before your friends and family, right? Talk about baptism being an amazing opportunity for covenant. We talk about a marriage being an amazing opportunity to covenant. 
This is also an amazing opportunity for parents to stand before your friends and family and your church family and say, we covenant before God, and we covenant with you to hold us accountable. We present this child to the Lord. Baby girl, baby boy, whatever. We present this child to the Lord. We dedicate this first fruit to the Lord. Think about what you're actually saying. Think about how the value of what you're saying is. And think about what that child doesn't even know. I posted a video this week. uh, I rarely do, but it was like a two-year-old baby maybe three-year-old baby, but his dad worked for Sparklets. And so part of his routine every day was collecting those empty bottles, collecting those empty bottles, collecting those empty bottles, and when he got home, he stacked them on the back of the truck, and he had to bring them all inside of his shop. Well, this little baby had been watching his dad do this from the time he was born, and at two years old, which is about the same size as my grandson, he waddled on out there, grabbed one of those bottles, and waddled back in. I'm talking waddle, full waddle. This is not a, this is not a walking person. This is a waddle. And he continues to do that for the length of this video. And I was just blown away by the fact that our kids are watching, our kids are learning. We're saying something even when there's no communication, right? I'm a grandparent. I speak gobbledygook with my grandson. His is tiki, tiki, tiki. We have no idea what he's saying, but we're convinced he's talking to us, so we just go back with him. Tiki, tiki, back to you. All good. And ha- but we're, we have a chance to dedicate him, and we have a chance to dedicate those children and say, you know what, Lord, with this first fruit, with our first child, whatever it is, we give it to you so he can, it passes out to our grains, to our offerings, to our finances, to whatever it is. I, I can tell you what, you know, we don't really talk about money much anymore, which is great that God is so good about all that. But I mean, regardless of how you see things, I mean, everything we have, whenever we obtained it, I think it's just a good priority just to remind ourselves, whatever we have, to sit down with it and say, you know what, Lord, would we have this if it wasn't for you? And since we do have it, and since we acknowledge it's from you, how can we be thankful for what we have and use it to bless your house, right? Everything you guys see in here, 1952 or 56, they built this. Uh, we couldn't do this again, church. You can't buy any land in, in Costa Mesa. I'm, I'm telling you, there's no land available. I talk with a lot of church startups. There's no extra land to buy in the town. What has been done here and what has been set before us from 1948 to the family room, that the first... Uh, people settled in over there to the first buildings across the street, 52, 56, to this sanctuary, we couldn't redo it. And they blessed the Lord with their first fruits. And now we're the benefactors of that. But they're saying, hey, we're reminding ourselves, everything we have is a blessing and a gift from God. How dare we hold on to it and say it's ours? We're, we're just stewards of it. You're only going to have it for a period of time, and then it will be someone else's. Keep a priority to bless the Lord with it. Ultimately, why as we get to 37? Because we have all this responsibility to bring everything we have to the Lord and say, Lord, it's your house, it's your home, we're simply partakers of it, thank you for it. 39 says, so let us do one thing and do it well. Let us make sure that the priority of keeping the house of the Lord and everything that the house of the Lord needs is done. We covenant to do that. Now, I don't know about you, but that's a pretty impressive list of things that they covenanted to do. And I probably could go back through it all, but I'm not going to because some of the most amazing part of this covenant is yet to come. The most amazing part of this covenant, this was all part of the Old Testament, right? The Old Testament was, bless the Lord, and the Lord blesses you. If not, curse is what's going to come upon you. Earn and deserve. That was their philosophy, earn and deserve. But you know what, church? We are not under that any longer. And all these different things that they had to do to get this revival going, to get themselves locked into the understanding of what do we need to do to maintain the revival, to covenant with the Lord, we are not under that covenant any longer. For a new covenant was instituted. And do you know when the new covenant was instituted? When Jesus sat down with the disciples at the Last Supper. Now, I've done this, I've done communion many different times, and you guys know I am very emotional about doing communion. And even probably today it will be hard for me. 
let me give you a quick read of the covenant we're going to talk about uh, communion at, in just a few minutes, maybe five minutes. For I received of the Lord, 1 Corinthians eleven twenty three. 1 Corinthians eleven twenty three. For I received of the Lord that which I also passed to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. He reinterprets something that they've had from the very beginning. Bread and wine, they've had from the beginning, but they've never had bread and wine like this. Because why? Because in the same way, after the supper, he took the cup saying, this cup is the new covenant. Did you catch that? Because we've done it a million times, right? We've all had communions a million times. But did you catch what it's implying? The first time that he said that with his guys is on the night that he's leaving. And I'm sure they had a lot of stuff in their head, and I'm sure that it might have just gone right over the top. But what he was instituting with them was a new covenant, right? And a covenant is agreement, something that's agreed upon by people. It's not negotiated. It's un- you can't negotiate it. It's between God and us. You either accept it or you reject it. And he's telling them, I have a new covenant. What? In my blood. Because the system that they were locked into, that old system, was what? When you had a sin, you had to go to the temple and you had to have a sacrifice. The sacrifice had to be the loss of life. Without the shedding of blood, there's no remission for sins. Right? Matthew, my verse collector. And he's saying, hey, I'm clearing that system now in my blood. Every time you see that, it's going to be my blood. The shed blood of, of my life will now be the payment for your sins. And whenever you drink this, whenever you do this, you do this in remembrance of me and proclaim this every single time until the Lord comes again. Folks, the new covenant, if they would have caught that, if they would have caught the power and the significance of what the new covenant meant, they would have taken it in such a way that should have been mind-altering to them because it was just an everyday item that was reinterpreted, reinterpreted so that we could understand something that was happening, that God has paid the ultimate price and initiated us into a new covenant with him that we can simply fall back on it. And as we get ready to kind of do communion at this time, I'm going to ask who's ever, Matthew, you're going to play some music for us for communion? Is that Brad, whatever you guys got working? As we get ready for communion at this time, this is what I want you to think about today. I want you to think about, give yourself a moment to think about before you take communion this morning that we are not under the same covenant that they are. And a covenant is a really important thing, like we talked about how important a covenant. A covenant is a really important thing for us to be under. A covenant reminds us that we're not just doing this faith thing by ourselves. We are in a relationship with a living, breathing God who loves us and knows us, right? He sent Jesus down so he could know the kind of things that we're going through. And because that, even though we forget about it, like I said, Israel forgot about it, it doesn't negate it. And so because we're under this covenant, I want you to realize something, that the blood of Christ covers us. The bread that we take in, it restores us. And every time that we do this, until the Lord returns again, we're reminding ourselves we're not in this alone. We are in a covenant relationship with the living, breathing God who loves us. And just as he promised Israel to restore them, we now are grafted in. We are the grafted in the Gentiles. We are the grafted in people that also can be benefited and blessed by this amazing covenant. So may that be your source of encouragement this morning. And if you have asked the Lord into your life and you do know him as Lord and Savior, then I would encourage you to take communion. If you're sitting here this morning and you haven't made a decision yet to ask Jesus in to be your Lord and Savior, then I would simply just ask you to pray with me before we take communion. Because I don't want you to take the blood and the body of Christ in in such a way that you don't understand. So Father God, if there's anyone in this room this morning I just pray that you would reach down and touch them and that they would simply just say these simple words. 
Lord, I need you. Lord, forgive me. Lord, come into my life. Be my king. Be my savior. I receive the forgiveness of the cross. I want to be a child of the kingdom of God. May everything that I do, may everything that I say be a blessing to you. I ask it in the name above all names, the one who saves, your son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Ask a couple of the elders to come up here and help serve. If you're available, you come up with me for, yeah. I've been taking communion by myself for a long time, but I feel like the last time Jen and I got a chance to serve together, it was just a blessing to me to stand up here with my wife. Um, Byron and Diane, would you guys mind coming and serving here? pray for the communion this morning. Father God, I just thank you for the opportunity to serve you with our lives. I thank you for the reinterpretation of this simple bread and this juice, Father, that we could stand before you together as a body, unified in one fact alone, that we are under the authority of God's word and that you've given us all we need in Christ. Father, I pray that this communion would Give us the strength that we need to be the followers of Christ that you require for such a time as this. And that you would once again restore us this morning to be reminded of the covenants that you have with us. A covenant that our heart of stone that we once had is now a heart of flesh. That the law of God that was once written on tablets is now written in our heart. And that Jesus' return is not only eminent but promised. Father, may everything that we continue to do, each time we do it, may we do it in remembrance of the one who gave his life for us. We ask in your son's precious and holy name. Amen. Please come forward and get the elements.
believe they are going to go take it across the street or somewhere upstairs. They have it upstairs already, Diane. That's okay. Yeah, they do have it upstairs. 
You guys have it up there? Good. I'm going to give them a second to come back down. It's okay, Byron. Yeah, they got it up. They got it up there. You guys come back down. Church, this little simple thing is not a little or simple in any way. It's monumental and significant. It is the reminder of the new covenant. And you and I are all benefactors of it. So take and eat and do this in remembrance of him. In the same way, he took the cup afterwards and he said, this simple juice is no longer simple. It represents the fulfillment of a covenant my father made with Israel. But now in me, it's made complete. And you are no longer full of your past. For Romans 8 says, there is no condemnation for those in Christ. Every time you drink this, you do this in remembrance of him until he returns again. Take and drink.
I was you or God. I was going more. I, why would we end there? Dead space, so good. Dead space. <laughs> Sometimes we should end. We should just keep going. Hey, if you need some prayer afterwards, like I said, we'll be here. If not, you want to join the small group meeting across the street. There's a lot of stuff coming up, so stay alert, be involved, and church. God's going somewhere, right? If you're off the path this morning and you're kind of wondering what's going on, simple. Take a deep breath. Make peace with yourself and get back on the path. God has never left us. He's never forsaken us. And his covenant remains true. Even if you hadn't thought about it, does not negate it. All right, God bless you all. We'll see you next week for chapter 11. Invite a friend next week. Invite someone you love. God bless you. Have a wonderful weekend. We'll see you next week.